Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts... Canis Albinas. New Earth Relic. I'm suffering from three hours of sleep last night-itis. Oh. We're just going to infer for our purposes that it was playing Civ, but probably not. But we'll say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Half right. Oh, oh. Oh. Oh, oh, something tells me you were up for another reason, and then to try to kill some time because of the insomnia, you decided to play Civ and hope that would put you to sleep. Yes. Ah. Correct. Welcome to Polycast, episode number 318. My name is New Earth Relic, and today I'm joined by Dan Q. I look out into the sky, and I realize, oh, it's night. I've been playing Civ again. Makalua. Uh, all I see out in the sky is a bunch of rain, a bunch of rain, which I needed the rain, but yeah, you can stop now. Thanks. Mega Bears fan. What is this rain of which you speak? It's when wet stuff falls from the sky. Yeah, I know. I totally forgot about it, too. Oh, mythical, magical sky water. Got it. Uh-huh. And also joined by guest co-host, Canis Albinas. And it's also raining here, and I'm nowhere near them. So yay. Well, in the news, Civilization VI coming to the Nintendo Switch announced... Then removed. We'll get to the removal part in a little bit. As part of the official announcement, uh, and of course, even though it's been removed, it has been archived. Thank you, Reddit. Thank you, Civilization Fanatic Center. Thank you, YouTube. Thank you, Internet. Sid Meier's Civilization VI is coming to Nintendo Switch on November the 16th. It will include the latest game updates and improvements and four pieces of additional content. The Viking Scenario Pack, Poland Civilization and Scenario Pack, the Australia Civilization and Scenario Pack, and the Persia and Macedon Civilization and Scenario Pack. It also mentions that up to four players can cooperate or compete for supremacy via a wireless local area network. Said the poster who archived this ultimately ended up being an archiving exercise for us on CFC. I am Max Hailme. I've been expecting this announcement for ages. Civ 6 seems like a perfect choice for a console like Switch, but I won't buy it until Rise and Fall is released. Well, we are going to be talking about Civilization 6 on the iPad. That came out earlier this year, and they're still waiting for the Rise and Fall expansion pack. So you might not want to hold your breath. Or if you do, hope you have Aquaman's lungs. I am fortunate enough to have a uh, Microsoft Surface, which actually runs Civ 6 on Windows normally. So I've got it on the go, and it is pretty awesome. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say, I, in fact, have Aquaman lungs, and I will be waiting. And I was going to be like, whoa, excuse me. (laughs) So I do definitely hope that the uh, Switch and iPad players do get Rise and Fall after not too long. We talked about the removal of it, and within X number of hours, certainly less than 24, the announcement was gone, but again, not before a number of other places picked up on it, and the general consensus is there was an oopsie there. Somebody made a mistake somewhere that it was not supposed to be announced yet for some reason. There was a Nintendo Direct broadcast that was scheduled for whatever day this was. I think it was September 7th, and... um all the stuff that was supposed to come out was supposed to be announced and released at that time, all the information, because that's when the embargo was. But they postponed the Nintendo Direct, and apparently somebody forgot to tell 2K. Oops. 
There was a, an embedded video within the news item that was on Civilization.com. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find anybody that was able to get a copy of that. When I did a search on YouTube last night, which was the evening of September 10th, Eastern Time, North America, all I could come up with was the intro video. And of course, the comments are like, this is nothing specific to it being on the Switch. This is the intro video that came with the game when it was released in late 2016. But all of the information and the press release stuff was there. It talked about in total that you would have 24 leaders to choose from. I think there's 18 base plus the Aztec. Do we have any idea if the Switch version is the same as the iPad version, or if this is yet a third version of the game? I'd be kind of surprised if it was the same version, just because uh, the Switch has a whole bunch of controllers that it has to deal with, whereas the iPad doesn't have anything. Well, does the iPad one at least have keyboard and mouse support because you can connect a keyboard and mouse to the uh, iPad? So I'm wondering if they could just emulate keyboard and mouse with the controllers, although that might not necessarily be the best idea. Yeah, it seems like a really bad idea. As soon as you try and force one method of control to emulate another, you just get into this giant mess where oh yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah, I've tried playing real-time strategy games on consoles before, and... Uh, Civ is a turn-based strategy, so a little bit different, but, oh man, not having the keyboard and mouse is just awful. Yeah, although you do get a touchscreen for uh, at least the iPad version. That's does a the, big advantage. Does the Switch not have a touchscreen? It does. But I don't know what the Civ 6 Switch version is going to have for touchscreen support. I'm assuming it will, but you know what they say about assuming. The announcement didn't say anything about that one way or another. I would think that they probably would, because the Windows version also has touchscreen support. Right. I don't know why they would take it out. Yeah. Especially when that's the main way you're going to interact with it on Switch anyway, because I can guarantee the controller is going to be hard to use on the Switch because I've seen one. Yeah, that's why I was kind of wondering if it's just the same as the iPad version and they just expect you to use the touchscreen and whatever simplified UI they had for the iPad. Yeah, that's my guess. I'm not sure. We'll see when it uh, finally gets announced for real this time. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a different version again as well, because even though Aspire Media is doing both the Mac and the Linux port, those two versions for the longest time were not in step with each other, and that was from the same company. So this is yet another company doing this. So I shouldn't say it's your first handheld opportunity for Civ since Civilization Revolution more than 10 years ago now. Wow, because it's also on the iPad. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, because as we'll be getting to when we're talking about the iPad version, there's been a lot of raving about the iPad version, actually. So hopefully the Nintendo Switch does it right for those who actually want to use the Nintendo Switch. And seeing as how there's nearing 20 million units sold, from what I've been able to account as of the end of June, there's definitely a market here for it. Let's just hope it translates well. And if the iPad experience is any indication, then it will. I know it's not exactly the same, but hey, it's Civ 6 on the go, you know, when you want to go. And you can interpret that however you want. Well, we know the Switch is going to be owned a lot more widely when the Pokemon games are released this year. It's usually one of the number one drivers of Nintendo consoles that are handheld. Of course, when it says cooperative and competitive multiplayer, the announcement talks about going over a LAN. It doesn't talk about the wider reach of the internet, even though the Switch has that capability, right? So I'm wondering if that's just going to be an initial limitation of Civ 6. And if so, I guess we don't have to worry about cross-platform play. And that's kind of the other reason I was wondering if it's the same as the uh, iPad version, because if it is the same or very similar code, then that would lend itself easily to, in the future, potential cross-platform play with at least the iPad version. But it sounds like they're not going that direction, or at least not yet, which then kind of makes me think maybe it is just a completely different version with different UI and everything. Do we normally know stuff about that for various games? 
I'm not used to seeing a whole lot to talk about what codes look like what. Not from anybody like Aspire. Aspire is just, just like, oh, well, we're going to work on it, and who cares when it's ready? Yeah. <laughs> the buzzing in the chat. Ports are always complicated projects because games are generally hot messes held together with tape. Well, <laughs> yeah. I can believe it. I, I think the only thing that's different is what kind of tape is used. AAA <laughs> games, that's definitely true. Do we know who's developing the Switch version? Was that in this announcement anywhere? It was not, no. So we don't know if it's Aspire or I doubt it would be Aspire. They have nothing comparable to that. They haven't done anything else with the Nintendo Switch to this point. It could be a completely unknown to those of us in the Civ world. Yeah. One post on Civ Fanatics posted by Oov, O-O-V. Shift-Enter allows you to, quote, bank production science and culture. So for players who weren't aware of this, you can hold the shift button and press enter to force the end of your turn. So you can skip giving units orders, you can skip assigning research projects, and you can even skip, apparently, building things in your cities. Apparently, it doesn't just send all that production and research to the garbage can. It actually just banks it and then just dumps it all into whatever production or research project you assign when you finally do assign it. So people have been using this as a tactic slash strategy slash maybe exploit to finish projects really quickly. I see a post in this thread about building, I think it was the uh, Temple of Artemis in like a few turns by just banking all their production until they researched the appropriate tech and then dumping it all into the temple and getting a near instant wonder. So the post here is basically asking if instead of building a monument or a scout or a builder or a warrior or an archer, just build nothing and save it up. Who does it? Does anyone do it? It's kind of dangerous, because what happens when the barbs find you? (laughs) And even if you have the barbarians turned off, and you have no other competition on the map, you're not doing anything else with those turns. You're not constructing something else. I could see someone trying to do this situationally, but just as a general practice, I think, yeah, it is very, very risky. It just seems kind of lulzy. I don't think it's a cheat. I think it's a bug. I don't think this is what was intended to be done, quite honestly, and it was missed. But the fact that it has been in the game as long as it has, and we have had updates since then, just tells me that the civilization community isn't bitching enough about it. So we need to get on that. I've had situations in the past where the game is just bugged out, and it keeps giving me a prompt to do something that I can't actually do. Like, it tells me a unit needs orders, but all of my units have been given orders, and I click on the thing, and it doesn't take me to a unit or activate a unit anywhere. It just won't go away. So I use the shift-enter thing to bypass that problem, and I'm wondering if maybe that's an artifact from testing when maybe the devs were having that problem consistently with the end-turn button, and uh, they just either forgot to take it out or was like, well, these bugs are still in the game rarely, so let's just leave it. It's a feature. Shift-enter for instant-in-turn has been a thing for a long time. It was in Civ 4 and 5, both. And it's fantastic, especially in multiplayer situations where... (laughs) I mean, the turn timer is even more helpful sometimes when you get stuck, but sometimes shift-enter is also helpful to actually progress the game. Or in some cases, I'm not getting the notification I should be getting 
press shift enter, and you may in fact get a notification before you can then go ahead and roll over the turn. But quite frankly, the notion of banking this just makes me think of, remember in Civilization V and the advanced game options, there was the allow policy saving and allow promotion saving? So that was like a formal option in the game. So to me, do one of two things. Either modify the game setup to either allow that specifically, because that's not part of the, you know, the base game settings, or just remove it altogether. Yeah, it might be easier said than done just because of how it might be built. It's a simple if statement. Yeah, I'm just wondering if that would cause problems with uh, losing overflow or something. I don't know. When I was actually doing out the math earlier, I was wondering whether or not that would be better than building a worker just to chop down forests. And it sort of breaks even. The worker gets you all the worker bonuses from policy cards and uh, Magnus and stuff. But this gets you uh, immediate production and you don't have to worry about finding those forests in the first place. Yeah, you can't use Magnus to buff it if you're not uh, chopping or harvesting. Yeah, exactly. From our chat, and again, our episodes are recorded live, the buzzing says this is a pretty low priority as a bug. It has no impact on any player's experience save multiplayer balance. I don't think it's just the multiplayer experience that you're going to encounter this, but it's very unlikely you're going to encounter this incidentally. And even if you are pressing Shift-Enter to roll over turn, you're probably not going to notice this. But the buzzing also says, if you fix this, you risk making another unknown bug. I get why it's certainly lower on the priority list than maybe some other bugs. There shouldn't just be like a hotfix or something for this. But I don't think the possibility of introducing a new bug means that you don't try to fix it, but you do prioritize it. Although the buzzing does also say, in order to address this, it's, quote, not a simple if statement. But he also says, I guess it comes down to the resource overflow from a wonder refund, chopping forest, unique abilities, inspiration. You need to keep those in one turn production. I just think it's a risk. Like, am I going to go ahead and construct a wonder? Am I willing to invest all of those turns in something that I may or may not get? Yes, in this case, but Dan, you are going to get something. You will eventually be able to overflow that into something. Yeah, but are you really that much farther ahead than if you were, quote-unquote, actively doing something with those hammers on that particular turn, on those particular turns that you rolled over? Yeah. It's interesting to note, but I don't think it's... It's not egregious. I don't think it's... People should be getting banned from multiplayer communities from using this, or people raving about it in single player, but it is certainly worth noting, and I do think it adds some strategy. Unintentional strategy, not great strategy, but it's strategy. Yeah, of course, if you're not using that production to build a monument or, you know, your first district, then obviously you're losing out on whatever yields those provide. And if you're not building scouts and units, then you're missing out on the opportunity cost of finding ancient ruins and natural wonders and certain eurekas and inspirations. So yeah, it's a it's a trade-off. One argument I did see in the thread for using this was it's great for those turns when your cities have nothing worthwhile to build. And I'm like, I question your city placement then. Because there's always something that you could be building or always something that you could be investing in. It's not, well, I've got nothing to do. I'm going to shift enter to bank stuff. It's like maybe if you were a couple of turns off of a tech that you really wanted to get a good head start on a particular wonder or something, and then you might want to bank it for a couple of turns like that. That would be a great way to use it. Yeah, that's where I'd want to use it the most. Build a district or a wonder, something that's going to be kind of expensive. Yeah, exactly. get down those commercial hubs in like one turn after researching uh, currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be insane. I do see uh, one post here from, I think it's just pronounced Boyan Soon, saying that the shift enter to skip turn is one of several exploits that are banned in China. And I'm just wondering by the Chinese government, like, <laughs> is there like, is there an official governing body in China that determines the rules and exploits for 
Civ Six. I kind of interpreted that as like the multiplayer community concentrated within China. You will find that this is typically banned in their games. But yeah, they, I also thought the same thing. I'm like, I know the Chinese government pays attention to lots of things, but I don't yeah. think civilization <laughs> is quite that important for that communist country or any country to really get into the mechanics of a game. Banning a particular game maybe based on its content, but banning a particular – this is not even a mechanic. Banning a particular tactic yeah. within a game? Right. Well, I could see people within the government on their own time who play the game paying attention to such things. I mean, sure, it's like, crap, I couldn't get the game banned, but I'm going to get this banned. Well, you know, all right, more of the power to you. It could also be that they maybe actually have some kind of esports tournament organization that actually does set formal rules for these sorts of things that we just don't have here quite yet in the States. This is also apparently the way it works in CivRev as well. I think it's good for people to know about it, and if a multiplayer community wants to make it clear that that's not acceptable, then as long as that information is communicated up front, and then if people go ahead and agree to that, and then they violate it, then yes, they should be penalized for that. But beyond that, in and of itself, I think we're good. I mean, it's good to raise awareness of it. It'd be nice. It, sh- it should be fixed at some point. And it's really just more interesting than anything, because it's kind of that holdover, like you were saying, Candace, in a way that this was the way it was in CivRev. And I said it made me think of, you know, the policy saving, for example, from Civilization Five. It's like, I didn't even miss it in Civilization Six, And now it's kind of like, oh, that would be nice to have that as, as an option within the game. One other thing to think about with regard to balance is I'm assuming that the AIs cannot use this. So the question of, is it entirely fair, although I'm sure it just offsets all the other ways in which the AI cheats. So, Well, I do understand in Civilization Six, it could be an issue if you're doing that and you're saving stuff and it's like, hey, I can go ahead and I'm next in line to get this great scientist, for example, but no, no, I'm banking stuff and there might be some issue where, you know, sorry, cannot recruit. Speaking of things that you could put production to if you had nothing to put it into... All the district projects in Civ 6, there's, what, eight of them? One for each district, campus, commercial, entertainment, encampment, harbor, holy site, industrial, and theater. And they're all relatively the same. Like, three of them give you the same thing except for the type of great person point you get. Encampments and industrial zones just give you 15% of the gold equal to the production you wasted in it, and then you get great person points for those types. Also included in this list, 15% science, 30% gold. The bread and circuses one is uh, loyalty pressure. Harbor, also 15% gold. Holy site, 15% faith. And theater, 15% culture. And all of the great writer, musician, and artist groups. So if you want 15% more of any yield that isn't production, you could just produce with these things. And they also give you free great person points to boot. I usually just think of it as spending production to get great people. I never even care about the yields. So, you know, I really want that next great merchant. I really want that next great scientist. Someone's going to beat me to it. I'm not going to bank enough faith to be able to make up the difference. I'm not going to be able to increase the number of buildings across my collective buildings within these districts in order to generate enough, in order to catch up. And I'm really not interested in spending my gold on great people. So this just gives you an infusion. And, of course, it's once the project is done. And, of course... The city that you constructed in, the greater production that it has, the more quickly it will go ahead and it will complete this for you. I think it is 
really ignored by a lot of Civ Six players, whether you're new to the game or even people who have been playing the game for some time, because it's not something that we had before, number one. Number two, it's presented in the user interface at the bottom. It's like, okay, I'm looking at all my possible choices, and my eyes are only going to look at that and probably think about it if I've gone through the entire list of the units and the buildings and the wonders, and I'm thinking, man, there isn't anything else to do. So really, this profile in the districts is to make you aware that first off, it's there, and no, it's not useless. It's not the same as, I think there was some mod for Civilization Four that allowed you to construct nothing. It can be useful. And indeed, if you don't have something else to put into the production, as long as you have the district constructed in that city, then you can have that production go towards those districts. And if you decide, oh shoot, I've got two turns invested into this project, but I want to turn around and construct a swordsman right now, you can do that and you can go back to it and it'll be there waiting for you. It's the same thing as produce culture, produce science, produce money in previous games. The difference is they're not indefinite, which means every time you finish a project, you have to go in and click five times to get the thing to go back to doing the same thing, which is probably the number one largest annoyance that these things have. So you can't do half of it to get over the hump of getting a great person and then just stop it. You've got to wait the 10 turns or however the heck long it takes for it to finish. But if you're doing it for anything other than the great person points, it's like, oh, I can get some gold, or I you know, I can get some faith, or I can get some science. Uh, why don't you just go ahead and construct the next building? You're going to be better off. <laughs> well, and even for great people, long-term, building the next building is probably better because you're going to get those points every turn instead of only when you're doing the project. So unless you need that great person now, yeah, it's just better off building something else. It's a short-term investment. And even then, when I say now, I don't mean now. I mean now as in 10 turns from now. Not immediately, but the immediate future. Right. I think the one that's getting the least talk in is probably the most interesting of them for me, which is Bread and Circuses. Loyalty pressure and loyalty is pretty tough to get in this game, relatively speaking, at least compared to gold, beakers, and points. I usually find myself drowning in gold, so I can just buy everything else that's on that list. Even buy great people with gold is not actually all that tough at a certain point. At a certain point, no, it's not that tough. I think you're almost always better off spending your gold on something else other than maybe some very select great people. But you're right that the bread and circuses kind of breaks that mold, and it can be used as like, you know what, I've got a couple of cities that are right on the border. I've already got a Manny, the governor, in this one city. I really need some additional loyalty boost right now, and I'm running the other policies for it. You know, okay, I don't have room enough for a governor in there right now. I need to keep a Manny there. I don't have another governor that I can assign it right now. I can't garrison a unit in there. It would be really nice to just get that little bit of umph to, even if it means, you know, being able to hold on to that city that much longer so you can go and take the other city that's exerting pressure on you to take it, to capture it, to raise it or whatever. Definitely is worthwhile noting, as you're saying. It's also worth noting, I think, just going back with regards to commercial hub investment, that for what you're getting invested in it, that the gold is 30% as compared to the 15% that you're seeing across the other, you know, and realizing that it's, well, of course, because commercial hubs are pretty darn good and gold is amazing in the game. So I guess it's quote unquote fair that the actual district that is gen- helping generate gold for you is going to be able to convert the production a little more efficiently towards gold than anybody else. How to sell those handcrafts. <laughs> And then, of course, as I say that about the commercial hub investment, I think that's also fair to say about the Theater Square performance as well, Dan. If you're getting culture, 
from the theater square, seeing as how that's the cultural district, and that should be 30% of the production invested in it. So you can definitely make the argument that there's inconsistency there. But we've got inconsistencies with gold anyway. I'm looking at you, city-state envoys. Tying back to an earlier topic, I could maybe see using the uh, Industrial Hubs project as a way to bank production. Instead of shift-enter, maybe they could have turned that into an actual mechanic so that there would be a little bit of a difference between how those worked. Maxfield started a, a topic about future tech and future sim. He says that one thing he thinks needs fixing is the absence of high-end stuff at the end of the tech tree. No stratosphere, paratroops, or giant robot. It means once you've researched all the tech you need for your space program, there's nothing new to get. And in the turns while you're putting that Mars mission together, the other sims catch up and you just spam future tech. Spam, spam, spam. So science and culture become effectively useless commodities. He says he doesn't see why future tech has to be so useless. A few extra points in your score isn't going to make much difference. It suggests something like for each batch of future tech, some friendly units gain combat strength, or batch of future civics, all of the friendly cities gain an amenity. That, well, if it was every so many future techs, then okay. But if that was every future tech, um, that could get out of control. Unless they just made it way more expensive. This is true. If future tech was, yeah, super expensive, then that would be okay. What I think they should do is they should probably just split the future tech up into multiple different future techs. I think they already do that on the civic tree. I think there's two different ones that you could get. It's like one is like globalization and I don't remember what the other one is, but maybe have like a military one where each time you research it, it's plus one combat strength for all units. Maybe have amenity one, have a few different ones that have different effects and you can choose which ones you want to continue to inflate. Yeah, because while we're not giving a name to what tech you've just researched, you're doing a future research like this is something that'll be a great amenity in the future that we haven't invented in the real world yet. Right, yeah. The problem is what happens when you get an AI that has so much bonus science that it gets 30 future techs done before you can get a chance to fight them? 30 points is enough to to one-shot a unit. So if you had comparable tech units, you would be annihilated very quickly. Well, I mean, values could be subject to change based on balance, you know, so maybe it's half a combat strength or something. But that would still be 15, and that's still enough to do a lot of damage. Then I guess that AI would win the game because you wouldn't be able to beat them. But I mean, I've complained on many occasions that I don't like the way that Civ handles difficulty in general, so eh. It's a long-standing problem nobody has ever solved effectively. Yep. I think that's a, just a common problem with Forex games in general, though. There's a point at which you've hit the point of no return, that you're just so far ahead that you're going to win. It's just that you haven't formally won. What you end up doing is that now you have a whole bunch of different options that aren't a whole lot more interesting, and they don't really advance a win condition other than the military one, where you just super out-military them. But at that point, you're just so far ahead that you should just start building space projects instead and just win by space. It's a good suggestion, but it's not one that meaningfully makes my games of civilization better. Because when I'm thinking about spamming future techs, I've already gotten everything that I need to win with space. So why not just win with space? Yeah, I'd much rather see more ways for the player to declare victory earlier than to fill out the late game tech tree with more stuff that I'm never going to use. Careful, we tried that with Civ 4 and we ended up with the Apostolic Palace. Well, <laughs> yeah, true. I am pleased to see the number of people that actually miss giant death robots. <laughs> 
mean, yeah, sure. It's useless and not that effective by the time you get to that point in the endgame, but it's fun. That's the point. Oh, yes. The Civ meme before there were memes. Uh-huh. Along with Spearman versus Tank. I mean, to me, future technology and future civics is just an acknowledgement that you have reached your destination. You don't need to be rewarded further for reaching your destination, because by that point, whether you've researched all of the technologies in the technology tree and all the civics on the civics tree, you should be positioned to win very soon, formally, or if not, then no one is probably going to be able to challenge you in any meaningful way to try to topple you. So I don't think you need to get something more on top of what you already have. It's just, are you about to win the game already, or what are you doing? I think the issue we have is you have to get most of the tech tree to even start the Mars mission projects completely. Because they're so high production requirement, you end up spending 10 to 20, sometimes 30 turns building those when you've already completed the tech tree. Whereas in previous games, there would be some sections of the tech tree that you didn't have to go to before you built the, t- the spaceship parts. So you would have time to research those while the parts were building. But that's not really true in Civ Six. And plus, once you get up to the information era, none of the techs do anything other than just give you a unit anyway. Like, there's almost no buildings. There's no special effects. They're just filler techs, really. It's kind of an issue that lies with problems in the very highest end of the tech tree that we don't really know how to handle and right. hasn't really been addressed. And it seems like that's where the next expansion pack will probably be. Yeah, and so, I feel like adding even more future text just kind of adds to that problem. It band-aids over the issue where the late game is just bad, and now we're making it less bad by giving you some repeatable choice options. Yeah. Right. I mean, we don't need to add new text to bring in high-end stuff if there's all of these basically dead texts at the end of the tech tree that we could just put more high-end stuff in. Yeah, God of Kings had a suggestion of arcologies, which that could be something that's your next improvement over a neighborhood. Because all the science fiction stuff I've seen in the future usually had some sort of arcology or super tall buildings that were, where's that when we start getting to this era? It's a little bit further in the future than I think Mars missions would be. Yeah, but still, I mean, True. even... Because we're probably going to be to Mars in, what, 20 years? Whereas <clears throat> arcologies are very far away. We could have things like desalination plants that give you fresh water for coastal cities that don't mm-hmm. have otherwise have fresh water we could have things like ocean wind farms oh, boost yeah. production or something like there are things that exist now or will exist in the near future that aren't on the tech tree at all that could go in some of those techs and civics so i'd rather see them fill those out with useful stuff rather than add more that i'm never going to use yeah, it comes back to the problem of late game stuff is not really a super important thing to put into Civ in my mind, just because the early game is really where a lot of the fun in Civ comes from. Right, even the if you explore, have... the building, trying to create an empire out of space and some limited resources. Yeah, I mean, how good would a desalination plant even be at that point in the game? Okay, so you get fresh water in your coastal cities when the game's going to end in 10 turns. What are you going to do with it? Is it even going to be enough to grow a population? So I get concerns like that, but I think there's a lot of room to improve the existing techs rather than add more. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all for making every technology meaningful in some way, even if it's a later game technology, which means you're trying to go for something very specific. So it gives you a very specific but a very powerful reward in order for getting that technology in addition to the balancing so that I don't have to go and grab all of these other technologies that really have nothing to do with what it is that I want just to be able to get to what it is that I need. 
and tying it back into the the questions about you know building the, the space race uh, project parts, I'm just thinking to actually get to the point where you have finished the tech tree and now you're going to get something else for the perpetual researching of that you know that last future tech and that future civic that repeats it. No, either make it a little more meaningful for what's already in there, or actually let's reduce the number of civics and the number of techs if we can't get there. And then if people are like, well, if we reduce the number, then people are going to get to future tech, quote unquote, too early. Then as has already been suggested, maybe we just increase the cost of those technologies and those civics. Lord Yannick in here is saying, yeah, give some late game tools to utterly obliterate enemies with style for science domination players. Nothing like playing the evil genius who acts friendly with everyone while its master plan comes to fruition, then declares war on the whole world and unleashes an army of unstoppable oversized robots and rains death from the sky with stealth bomber and XCOM combos. See, that's why those units were fun. I'm still building my Mars project over here, but now I'm going to make sure I'm the only one going. Scorched Earth policy. Uh-huh. Giant death robots were really cool to look at. And you look at that number and you're like, that's a lot. <laughs> and that's pretty much the entire use of that. Yeah. Or somebody throw it out. Metal Gear? <laughs> yes, Metal Gear time. Oh, yeah. The thread started talking about, yeah, we should bring stuff from beyond Earth. Rhaenyra's like, we could have aquatic cities and the satellite layer. <laughs> I'd love to have an optional magic base component from the base game, possibly branching off what? the Pantheon system. And I'm like, okay, at that point, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's not Civ. That's future. That's quote unquote future, future. That's not what civilization yeah. itself is. This is historically, I don't want to say historically based, it's historically emulated. Historically themed. <laughs> yeah, I prefer the more grounded nature of civilization and would prefer not to be adding in crazy science fiction concepts again you know your future things are fine but the giant death robots is about the limit of what i'm willing to accept yeah it's somewhat can accept that as being an idea that's going to come off of us using drones and unmanned vehicles type of a thing you can accept XCOM as being a high-tech version of like some of the seal ops or something like that right so what you're saying is you don't want to see xeno titans from beyond earth I'd rather not play to the point where we start getting the warp gates from the new planet back on our planet. Because (laughs) that that would be the sign that we've played too long and the time victory was too late. Yeah, I do not want to have to play Beyond Earth at the end of every game of Civ (laughs) 6. We could make that be the way that time victory happens. A portal opens up. It's like, hey, what are you guys doing back here? Yeah, and the game just launches beyond Earth, and he's like, okay, play this now. Civ 5 did have that link at the end of the science fiction. Someone asked, is Archer Rush still viable? And, of course, I have to mention Betteridge's Law of Headlines, so, of course, the answer is no. Archer Rush is clearly dead, and it's buried. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, uh, the correct answer is it depends. Uh, Archers are probably my pick for the strongest unit early in the game, at least until horses really start showing up in quantity. So if you have a close civilization, Archer Rush is fairly strong, but it does drop off as the distance grows or the terrain gets bad. Or as the difficulty increases. That, and to me, there's also the question of, so, first off, are you dealing with cities you're taking? Are there walls there, number one? But even more importantly, what's the spread of units? What units do you have? What units do they have? Where are those units situated? Because 
if you're moving in with archers and they've got a lot of melee units around and you're not able to protect them, they're going to get squashed. If you're able to have sufficient number of archers that you can move around the city and siege it and prevent it from healing for an extended period of time, plus, oh, you know what, if my archer gets hit, that's okay, I've situated my archer on a farm and it can go ahead and pillage that farm and get health, plus as it's getting attacked and it attacks, it gains experience and then I can promote it back up to full health. All of these things make it very, very situational. But I do think, yeah, as, as long as it's a map that you're close enough you can get there by land relatively quickly. Even if you're not taking out a civilization completely with archers, if you're able to take out a second city, for example, and destroy some of their Carpet of Doom, it can really make a difference. I don't think it's as viable as, say, it was in Civilization Five, although that was more about Thank You Composite Bowman. I would also wouldn't go to the extreme as our guest on the last episode, Mr. Shadows, who says, it's a good idea at higher levels unless you're Nubia. And, and of course, <laughs> with the Nubian archers with the, the greater speed and the greater strength, of course, that makes their archer rush perhaps a little more versatile and a little more viable. But I think archers are, as good as they are for going on the offense... I think more often than not, you're going to find that they're better for, you know, an offensive defense for defending your land or, in fact, indeed defending the territory that you've been able to acquire. But that's not just going to be with archers. That's going to have been with some melee units like warriors, like swordsmen, and probably also along with a battering ram if you're dealing with walls. I have still had success with putting out four archers and two warriors Again, just starting to siege a city, especially if it's their capital and their only city. That puts a lot of pressure on them to actually try and do something about it. And even if they produce a warrior, you shoot the warrior, it dies, and now they've just wasted a bunch of production on a dead unit. You get to slowly just pick away at it. Of course, the biggest weakness is, of course, that while you're busy picking away at it, what you haven't been doing is producing stuff earlier that will help you win. Well, yeah, and very much the archer rush is you are doing this to win, right? You are doing this to take a city. Because it's kind of one of those, well, it's uh, you know, I didn't take a city, but I got rid of a lot of their units. It's like, okay, that is production that they've lost, but... That is a failure. Yeah. You haven't gained anything by that. As you were saying, NER, you've put yourself behind the eight ball because you spent all that time on that. And, okay, they weren't building units like you were building units, but you didn't take their city that is allowing them to continue to construct whatever it is that they already were constructing, and now you're in trouble because they're probably that much more technologically advanced, and they're going to come at you with something that even if you have some melee units to defend the archers, there's not going to be enough of them, and you're going to turn around and get overwhelmed. It's a very high reward, but it's also very high risk. A lot like Honor in Civ Five. Yes. In Civ Five, when you took Honor, if you didn't take somebody else out and take their cities and have all their cities plus your own, you were going to be behind. And usually that was bad. Well, usually that was very bad, but usually it was fatal. I mean, the starting poster, Corn Planter, will say, by the time I rush with my four-plus archers and warrior, they usually have three cities at least, and when I take one, it rebels before I can take the rest. That's the other thing that the Rise and Fall expansion pack introduced with the archer rush, or whoever you're taking cities. You really need to, when you capture that city, okay, first off, pay attention. Tell me, how long is it going to rebel? And then before you decide whether you're going to keep or raise the city, you can view the city details, and it's going to tell you about the loyalty pressure. And you have a look at that number, and you think, what can I use to counter that number? How quickly will I be able to counter that number? And unfortunately, and I've said before on the show, you're probably better off raising a lot of those cities, especially the first ones that you capture when they still have, for example, the other two still around, because then you've spent all of that time capturing that city, and then that city rebels, 
and now that city's got units that can turn around and attack you, and you've got to turn around and take that city again. Meanwhile, that Civ is like, okay, well, you've occupied my city on the front. That's probably all that you're doing with your one city is trying to take the city back. Meanwhile, I've got these other two cities, and I'm constructing units, and yeah, now it's my turn to take your stuff, and I get to keep it. And this is the real question in the topic. It's not a matter of whether or not archers are strong enough. It's a matter of whether or not the loyalty mechanics in Civ Six make it practical to do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one thing to be able to take cities. Can you keep them? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that having a handful of archers and a couple of warriors is enough to take early game cities. So yes, you can still archer rush. The problem is, are you going to be able to hold those cities with the new loyalty mechanic? And in a lot of cases, unless you're getting their capital... If you're not playing on Deity and the AI doesn't start with three cities right off the bat pretty much, and you can just take their capital right away, then, yeah, you're going to have a lot of problems with the loyalty. Yeah, or just plan to take all three cities at once. Well, that's the other thing, right? It's also getting to the plan of attack. Okay, well, the nearest city to be is their capital. They have two other cities. Well, yeah, I hope you're more or less going to take all three, or at least another one, depending upon its proximity to the capital relatively soon, because... You're not going to be able to raise the capital, so unless you're then able to quickly move on to the other cities and take them before that overpowers you, it's going to rebel, and then you're going to be that much farther behind. So either take one of the other cities first, or try to do a multi-pronged attack, which of course, if you're trying to take more than one city at once, you're probably not going to be able to produce a sufficient number of archers and get them in position in order to be able to leverage that, particularly the higher up the difficulty level goes. And Cornplanter says he's playing on Emperor difficulty. And I think you'd be in real trouble there, actually, in Emperor difficulty, if you're going with archers and you're trying to take more than one city at once, particularly if there isn't a lot of places that you can attack each one of those cities simultaneously on a turn. Yeah, or you have to skip hiring Magnus early in the game and go for Victor or Amani in order to get yourself more loyalty in those cities. And then you don't have Magnus, so there's an opportunity cost with that. It certainly is a whole lot of a gamble. If you take a couple of cities early, then that's a lot of stuff that you get. Terrain, cities, production, etc. But if you whiff, that's a huge opportunity cost that you've just taken, and yeah... Yeah, you got to be able to scout before you send out those archers. You have an idea of the lay of the land. You see what units they have. And something else you could even do is like, oh, I wonder how many cities they have. I can't quite see all of them. Well, you could always talk to them diplomatically. And it will tell you to look at the number of cities on their list. Remember, the number of cities they have is that number of cities plus one, because they'd never be able to trade their capital. Just also get yourself some intelligence about where things are so you know where to position those units or where you would have to position those units, because then that can help you decide whether or not you're really going to invest the archers in this. I wouldn't have it just be, oh, hey, look, I found this border. It's right here, particularly if it's capital. Let's go ahead, let's attack it right now without knowing more about what's in behind, what haven't you seen yet. Which, of course, is also applicable to any previous Archer Rush before we were talking about the Rise and Fall expansion. But just to cover our basis about the Archer Rush, because quite frankly, I think a lot of this advice also applies to, is this Spearman Rush viable? Is this Rush with any of this uh, Swordsman Rush, is it viable? It's all depending upon the circumstance, but that really early game... Ah, man, oh man, I would say, especially with the loyalty mechanic now, I'm not archer rushing as much anywhere near as I used to be. I'm still building a lot of slingers and then upgrade to archers, but I'm using them mostly as defense and for barbarian hunting now. If you want to try and declare on someone, 
and you've got archers sitting in your territory, and you've got them on, you know, like, hills or situated in the forest, and you're like, please, have them come to me, I will take them out, and then, oh, I'm sorry, you know, have no more Carpet of Dune, then I'm going to move in my archers on the city, but that's an even riskier proposition. I know that's not what this person is talking about, because you're trying to bait the AI into doing something. And, uh, yeah, good luck in that multiplayer as well. The ar- an archer... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> admittedly, it depends on who you're playing and how competitive the league is, but I, I'm pretty sure this question, I know this question is from the single-player perspective. From a multiplayer perspective, Archer Rush, I think it can be just as big of a gamble. It really depends, a lot of the times, just how adept at the game is the person that you're trying to attack, and also, what was your starting location like? If you think an Archer Rush is viable because you're right near a person, but Dan, it's not the capital, they don't have a lot of units on the map, how long is it taking you to construct those archers or those slingers that you're then going to delay getting archery in order to be able to upgrade into archers? Is it still going to be viable by the time you're able to get all of that built and get all of that situated? Man. Well, and then, of course, if you are just talking about single player, there's the ever useful strategy of just try it. And if it doesn't work, use the most ultimate of civilization wonders, the save scum reloading the autosave from before I declared war. I think it actually might be less viable in multiplayer, especially at online speed because of the lack of speed of the units, relatively speaking. Yeah, you got to be really close. Otherwise, by the time those units get there, they have tech to walls and that stuff. Yeah, whereas on single player. Yeah, if you're playing on marathon speed, speed, then you have a very large window in which to archer rush someone because it's going to take them forever to build units to defend themselves. But on online speed, yeah, they've got to be your next door neighbor. Otherwise, you're just not going to get there in time. And that's true of just a lot of units. I think it brings us to, uh, last but not least, kind of a little bit of a tie-in back to our news topic, because, well, made allusions to this. Civilization VI on the go. More games like Civ VI needed on the iPad, argues Apple Insider's Andrew O'Hara. Civilization VI is one of the few games that debuted on iPad with feature parity to the Mac and Windows versions. And I say as a side, yes, but not content parody. But anyway, after playing the game for the past eight months on our iPad, we've come to the conclusion we need more of this caliber of game on the iOS. I wholeheartedly expected a watered-down version stripped of key features and mechanisms like we saw with Civilization Revolution. To my surprise, that was not the case. The game is designed specifically for higher-end iPads taking full advantage of the touchscreen. As a turn-based strategy game, the menu-laden interface lends itself well to touch, possibly even more so than a mouse. Playing it I found to be at times more enjoyable than on my Mac. It is literally every feature found on the desktop version up to and including local multiplayer. Downloading the game is free, as are the first 60 terms. At this point, the full game can be unlocked with a one-time in-app purchase. Tech-wise, it's mentioned that any iPad Pro, the iPad Air 2, and the 2017 iPad are all capable, but any older are out of luck. We're not sure we'd recommend the iPad Air 2 or the 5th generation iPad, but it does run. Any iPad Pro or the 2018 6th generation iPad are great experiences. When I was reading this article, I was like, oh my goodness, somebody discovered that the old model of video game distribution is better than the (laughs) free-to-play coins unlocking bull crap. Like, yeah, it would be better if there were a lot more games on tablet PCs, not necessarily iPads completely, but things that weren't the new awful system of buying stuff that just is money drain over time rather than upfront purchase. 
I do think something that's kind of funny about the screenshots that they chose to put in this article is that all of them show the uh, iPad's battery as being almost dead. <laughs> to real life. Yeah. Well, it is interesting you mentioned that because, A, I know somewhere in the article O'Hara is complimentary of the designers for including the fact that you can see that indicator within the game itself. And second of all, they don't mention anything about <laughs> the battery drain on the iPad for playing the game. Probably yeah. because having it on is a battery drain. <laughs> Probably. Oh, no, definitely. I have no idea if it's comparable, but again, I do play Civ 6 on my Microsoft Surface, the full Windows version, and if it's not plugged in, the battery will be dead within 30 to 40 minutes. Wow, that is terrible life. Laptops are pretty close to the same, actually. Like, I have a laptop that usually has a six-hour battery, and you play anything that requires the graphics processor, and it's dead within 45 minutes. Yeah. And if we're talking about Civilization, a game that we know takes a considerable time investment, (laughs) we're talking about bringing the desktop version of Civ to a mobile platform as opposed to bringing Civilization to a mobile platform and making it like a Civilization Revolution. That is a comparable point. You know, unless you can easily be tethered to a power source, that's not really so much on the go as it is handheld, which I guess in some respects does allow some maneuverability. It's like, well, I don't have to sit in my office in front of my desktop. I can sit on the couch with my tablet, or I can sit on the desktop with my iPad, or, of course, apparently soon, your Nintendo Switch. Yeah, or you have to walk around with a backpack battery. Oh, you can look like a Ghostbuster. That sounds cool. Oh, no. There you go. Sold. <laughs> we just sold this damn. <laughs> Give him the Proton battery pack, and he is good. Good to Dan go. Dan has the DS version of Civilization Revolution. I don't think we need to sell him on it that much. It's true. I do. It was a gift, but I, I do own that, yes. <laughs> I was also given a copy of Guitar Hero, but that collects dust. (laughs) (laughs) The buzzing says in the chat, I would think the iOS would be a very tough market for Civ. There's an expectation that games are unsustainably cheap, which is why you have the microtransaction-based models. And I think a very similar argument was made 11 years ago about, oh, Civilization Revolution on the console platform, on the Xbox, on the PlayStation. Of course, the difference there, besides, well, you know, 10 plus years and the fact that we're talking about not just consoles, but of course mobile in the case of iPad, is that we're talking about bringing the desktop experience again to that platform as opposed to here is a version of Civ that works well for your particular model. I think lots of lessons have been learned about the controls, and certainly Nintendo Switch, and we were talking about that a little earlier. I would like to think that for similar yet different reasons, uh, kind of as stated here, that Civilization VI on the iOS would be able to stand out, that A, people who are looking for a game that is not death by microtransaction, but it could actually also bring some people who may not otherwise want an iPad or a Nintendo Switch, for example, to go ahead and buy that. And then it's, oh, there are actually people who own this console that are looking for games that are not death by microtransaction, thereby having some publishers, maybe not the traditional ones, say, hey, we can make a go of it here and have some kind of game on these platforms that are like Civ, whether it is content-related, whether the fact that it uses a different transaction model, or both of those things. So I think there's a potential win-win here, but I think there's also the possibility that Civilization VI will just stand alone. But I think the precedent is there that this could be something really, really sweet. It also helps that Civilization is a big established franchise. So when you're scrolling through the App Store and you see the $60 price tag and the free-to-play to to start, 
you get the cost up front instead of getting destroyed by microtransactions. So in that regard, it has more brand recognition than some of the uh, random microtransaction heavy ones. Yeah, the fact that that you can play the first 60 turns for free, I think, is imperative to trying to get those curious. Because it's like, yeah, as you say, it's, it's a name brand. It's like, I've heard that, but that's for desktops and laptops, right? That's not for my iPad. That's not going to be for my Switch. Oh, I can play it for free, huh? Well, let's see how that goes. I mean, you might say, Dan, it's not going to be free. I'm going to have to spend that much more electricity charging my device again after it drains my battery. Oh, gee, I'm so sorry. but You were going to do that anyway. Come on. You were going to do that anyway. Probably like a tenth of a cent. <laughs> hey, and if you play on online speeds, that first 60 turns is like half a game. So Yeah, I wonder if they're going to have uh, it as standard speed or online speed, but I'm guessing standard. If it's the same game, it probably has everything that yeah yeah that the base game has the regular game has at least or the okay it's not the regular game it's the PC version because they're all regular. I must admit, even I was skeptical about the iPad. Heck, I was skeptical about hey, you're running Windows 8, you can use the touch screen, and I was just kind of like no 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 this needs to be mouse and a keyboard no 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 and then I just realized number one I was basing that on some baggage. Number two, I wasn't thinking about, you know, lessons learned from previous versions. And three, I'm just old. So (laughs) (laughs) Windows 8 was baggage start to finish. There's no shame in being concerned about Windows 8 because it was never good. And the touchscreen support, again, having played it on the Surface tablet, is really good for the uh, menus and stuff. It's not so good with unit movement and things like that, uh, especially if you're trying to just highlight over enemy unit to see the combat odds calculations and all that stuff. That's something where you should probably have a mouse so that you're not accidentally attacking a unit that you shouldn't be attacking because that has happened. I've had a lot of issues using the stylus and stuff like that happening, so I usually use the fold-out keyboard and trackpad for whenever I'm moving units. But for navigating the menus, yeah, I can corroborate that the touch screen works really well for that stuff. They need a stylus that can register as different input based on the end of the stylus you tap it with. You have uh, a right-click and a left-click stylus. The one that I have, it has a button that you press to right-click, but I've just found that, and I don't know if this is a problem with the Windows or if it's a problem with the game, but it just sometimes doesn't correctly recognize the stylus inputs. That would be uh, an OS problem, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I don't have any other issues with any other software applications when I've used the stylus, so I don't know what the issue is. But yeah, there's just some times where the stylus just completely throws up on itself when I'm trying to use it. So just to be safe, I don't do any unit movement anymore with the uh, stylus. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net.
thank you for listening to episode 318 of Polycast. This is Canis Albinus, and I say hello, and I also say goodbye, because this is the end of the show, not the beginning, and I need to remember that when I'm giving an outro. Also here, we have Dan Q. Now plugging myself into your port of choice. Makalua. Would you at least ask before you plug into somebody's port, Ted? Gosh. I did say your port of choice. Yeah, uh, but do they even want to be plugged into? That's the question. The default answer is, of course, yes, it's me. <laughs> anyway, Mega Bears fan. Also coming to a Switch at some point in the indeterminate future. And guess New Earth Relic. I still remember StarCraft 64 as a successful port. That UI sucks. Yes. Am I doing it right? Yes. Oh, good. Thanks, Thanks Phil. <laughs> Dan, out of my head. <laughs> Seriously. Well, speaking of being wounded, this next news item certainly has some people up in arms. Yes. A post, well, a couple posts, actually. Uh, one... <laughs> get the get Whoa. get the number right. Get the number uh, right, sir. Invest all of this production to get a lower return on production. That just means you've discovered bureaucracy. Oh. <laughs> Does it make me a bad person if whenever I hear it looks like you're trying to do a uh, wide civilization? Uh, all I can think of is a picture of Clippy. <laughs> I was wondering that because I was like, isn't that like a Clippy thing? That- are you trying to do X? Do you need help with this? No, go away, Clippy. All right, all right. It's time for the unspoken segment on Polycast, you see, kids. <sighs> uh, what? Well, the Nintendo Switch version will be irregular because it will be the first full Civilization game on a console. Wasn't the first Civilization or Civilization 2 on the PlayStation? That doesn't count as a console, though. Uh, now, this is the part where the cat calls start, and I'm waiting. <laughs> you mean handheld? Well, I was making a joke that the PlayStation oh. wasn't a console, but um. yes. I'm pretty sure based on one trend in some aspect of gaming, there will be a Civilization 7. They're just going to call it Civilization because people can't count that high anymore. It's just going to go the SimCity route. It's just Civilization. As long as they don't become annual releases and they just start putting the year... Oh, Harry says, of course, Polycast is one of my 150 subbed podcasts. Wow. <laughs> How do you have time to listen uh, to 100? I was going to say, I hope some of those are only 30 minutes. Jeez. Yeah. Good Lord. Oh, and I love your awesome consistency. So when there's an update to, say, Polycast and any number of other podcasts, Polycast is the first one you listen to, right? Because it takes priority. <laughs> yeah, you're just fishing for more compliments. Come on when they give you the narrow window early in the morning and you expect them to call you before they show up as a wake-up call and then they don't and then you sleep through it like yeah i'll be there between eight and ten and i'll call you 20 minutes before i get there and then i'm like okay well that 20 minute call will be my wake-up call because i sure as heck am not getting up at 7 30 in the morning on a saturday on my own and then they don't call and i don't wake up and it's like, and, oh, we're sorry, we missed you. Dur, dur, dur. Yeah, oh, yeah, really. Well, wonderful. You weren't there. Here's the charge for the service call. Call us again for another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't gotten that yet. 
Alright, I think that uh, takes us to the end of the show. Fell. Thank you. Please do not adjust your audio player. Record date September 8th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.